from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. I'll be reading from servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness? By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would come and take your written word and press it deep into our hearts, that we may be changed, we may be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, for those of you who have been joining us for the first time, we're working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And we know that 1 Peter is the Apostle Peter writing to a group of Christians who are going through a very difficult and trying time. They're living in a society that is opposed to the Christian faith. In 1 Peter chapter 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, Peter focuses on what we have in Christ as followers of God and how we are to live together as God's people, the church. We saw last week that from verse 11 in chapter 2 all the way to chapter 3, verse 12, Peter now shifts his focus, not just as how we are to live together as God's people, but how we as God's people are to live in a society that's often hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are two things that he wants us to know. He wants us to remain faithful to God, but at the same time, he wants us to be fully engaged in the societies that we live in. And these two should not be held in tension. We should embrace both of them together. And the way that he has done this is that in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he has expounded for us certain general principles for how we are to engage in society and culture. And then he progresses from verse 13 all the way to chapter 3, verse 12 to apply those principles and flesh them out in four different areas of life. Last week, we saw him fleshing out those principles in the area of how we relate to government. Today, in verse 18 to 25, we'll see how he fleshes out these principles in the way that we respond to our employers, how we work. Next week, when Pastor Guna Raman comes, he will talk about marriage. And then finally, from verse 8 to 12, he'll talk about relationships in general. So today, we're going to look at how these general principles flesh out in the way we relate at work, in the way we relate to employment. But first, let me do a quick rundown of those general principles, especially for those of you who did not join us last week. We saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, that Peter says there are three things we need to know in order to function as faithful engaged in society. We need to know who we are, what we are to do, and why we do it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he reminds us of our identity. We are beloved exiles. We are far from home. We are not yet home. Our hearts have been tuned to the tune of the new creation. Here we are on earth as exiles. But though we're far from home, we're not far from God's love. We are loved with an unchangeable, eternal, and sacrificial love. You are, friends, beloved exiles. That's who you are, friend. That's who you are, Christian. Now, what are we to do as beloved exiles? Well, Peter says you're to fight the evil that's inside the passions of the flesh, the sinful desires. And as you fight those evil desires, it changes you deep inside and you begin to live honorably outside. And as you begin to live an honorable life, 
people will look at you and it commends the gospel. And that is why you do it. So that people might believe the gospel and glorify God on the day when Jesus comes again. So who are you? You're a beloved exile. What are you called to do, friends? You're called to fight the evil that's inside, live an honorable life that's outside, so that people might believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and glorify God when Jesus comes again. Now, how does this flesh out in verses 18 to 25 in our work? Now, just a quick aside. I know that a lot of you are struggling with work. I read an essay recently by a pastor, and he said he didn't realize how much of his pastoral ministry would be in terms of helping his people work out the complexities and difficulties of work. And I found that to be true too. You're struggling with your work. Please know that you're not alone. That's the first thing. The second thing is, on service reading, verse 18 to 25 seems really depressing if you're struggling with work. It seems to say to you, all you need to do is suck it up and endure and press through. And that's what God wants you to do. I want you to know that there are certain nuances for different situations. So take these as general principles, but talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to some of the leaders in the church in terms of how they may flesh out particularly. But a careful reading of this passage will give you something that's not only liberating, but instructive. Okay, so let's begin. This passage shows us that there are three things you need to work as a beloved exile. Number one, you need a perspective. Verses 18 to 20. Number two, you need a pattern. Verses 21 to 23. And number three, you need a power. Verse 24 to 25. A perspective, a pattern, and a power. Come with me to verse 18. Verse 18 says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now look at the passage. Just as Peter says we are to be subject to the governing authorities in verse 13, here in verse 18, he tells us that we are to be subject to our earthly masters. He's speaking to the relationship between servants and masters, but as you work through the passage, you realize that he's using this as an example for all of us. Because wherever we are, we are all servants who are accountable in one way or another to certain masters in our lives, we call them bosses, or supervisors, managers. For some of us, it's a board of directors or a board of elders. Peter says we are to be subject to them. Now, what does it mean to be subject? It means that we are to honor and obey them. And do you notice in verse 18, he says that you're supposed to honor and obey not just the good, not just the gentle, but even those who are unjust. And that word unjust can also be translated, the unscrupulous, the morally suspect. We are to honor and obey them. Now, this sounds terrible for a Sunday morning, doesn't it? Let me show you why it isn't as terrible as you think it is. Just as we saw how Jesus makes the authority of government relative to the authority of God in verse 13, he's doing the same here in verse 18. Look more closely at verse 18. He says, Be subject to your masters with all respect. Now that word translated respect is actually the word fear. I don't know why they've not translated it fear. 
Because that's the word used in verse 17. Fear God and honor the emperor. In verse 17, we saw that Peter was saying that yes, we are to respect and obey the emperor, but only God alone is to be feared. And so we respond and we obey the governing authorities in the context within the framework of fearing God. Now friends, in every instance in the book of 1 Peter, and you can try doing that, reading through, every instance of fear, we are told, is always to be directed to God. We are to fear God. We are actually told not to fear anybody or anyone else. Only God is to be feared. And therefore, here in verse 18, when it says, be subject to your masters with all fear, he's not talking about fearing the earthly masters. He's talking about fearing God. So once again, the authority has been made relative. You obey your earthly masters insofar as you are fearing God. God is the ultimate master. God is the ultimate king. And within that framework, you obey and honor your earthly masters. You obey and honor your boss. Now, what does this look like? Well, number one, if your boss tells you to do something that is unethical or irresponsible, to honor them with all fear of God means that you refuse. You refuse and you're prepared to endure the consequences of that refusal. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, or conscious of God, as some translations put it, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says that again in verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Which means, beloved exile, what you are called to do is to lay down the fear of man and to lay down your personal comfort and to take up courage and responsibility as you fear God and as you honor your masters and your bosses. Now, conversely, if your boss tells you to do something that is ethical and responsible, you must honor and obey him or her. Now, this even applies, verse 18, to bosses who are unjust and unscrupulous. Now, how does that work out? Look at the first half of verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? You know what Peter is saying here? He's saying that because we are beloved exiles and we work in the context of fearing God, it's possible for you and I to sin against God in the way we do our work. Colossians 3 verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, In our work, we are working heartily as for the Lord and not for men. If God is our ultimate boss, we must sometimes say no to our earthly bosses. But if God is our ultimate boss, we must also say yes to our earthly bosses, whether we like them or we don't. Tom Schreiner gives an example. He says, A secretary cannot refuse to type a letter for a manager simply because the manager is an evil person. Refusal to type the letter would be defensible only if the contents of the letter are evil. 
Friends, you are called to honor, respect, obey your boss, whether you like him or not, whether you like her or not, insofar as he or she is doing what God would have them do in supervising you, in telling you to do the things you are called to do. So in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, beloved exile, you're called to lay down your pride. You're called to lay down your laziness. And you're called to take up humility and productivity. So on the one hand, you're called to lay down fear of man and comfort. On the other, you're called to lay down pride and laziness. So what that means, friends, is that as beloved exiles, you and I are called to courageous, responsible, humble, and productive work with God as our ultimate master. And this is the perspective that we must all have. This is who you are, beloved exile, and this is what you're called to do in your earthly work. But more than that, friends, Peter goes on to show us a greater purpose for doing this. Look at verse 21. For this, Peter says, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. Do you see what Peter is saying here? To work in this way is your calling. And it's a calling to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. It's a calling to follow Jesus as our example. Now, friends, many of us wish that we had role models in life, don't we? An older pastor that will teach me how to pastor well. An older parent that will teach me how to parent well. An older colleague that will teach me how to work well. Friends, this passage is telling us that Jesus is our ultimate role model. He's the one that helps us make sense of our work and the purpose for which we work. We're to look to him and imitate him in the way that we work. And this actually does two things for us. Number one, it gives us a good model to follow. It teaches us. It's a resource for how we are to behave at the workplace. But secondly, in light of what we're called to do, to declare the praises of God, when we are following in the example of Jesus Christ in our work, we are giving an unbelieving world a glimpse of who Jesus is. And verse 12, we're commending the gospel to them. So as we follow Jesus as our example, we have a role model. We have a resource to shape us in the way that we are to work. But secondly, as we do so, we're also giving the world a picture of who Jesus is and what he is like. So what is Jesus like? Look at verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus' role model teaches us that we are called to ethical and responsible work. Committed no sin. There was no deceit in him. Friends, but it also means that when you are faithful and ethical and responsible in your work, you're giving an unbelieving world a glimpse of the purity and sinlessness of Jesus, your Savior. Look at verse 23. 
when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, this shows us that we are not to return evil for evil. We're not to slander when other people slander us. We're not to curse them out when they curse us. This also shows us that we should have a sense of poise, a sense of inner stability, even when we're mistreated. And the way to do this is to follow in Jesus' example. What did Jesus do when he was being reviled? When he was being persecuted, it says here that he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. You know, friends, when Christians turn the other cheek or we don't take revenge, sometimes people think that's that's stupid. And it means that Christians don't believe in justice. On the contrary, friends, on the contrary, it's precisely because we are so committed to justice that we love justice so much that we turn the other cheek and we do not take revenge. Why, friends? Because, friends, as Christians, we have a God who is completely and perfectly just, who promises us, friends, that no wrongdoing will ever go unaddressed. He is the God we worship. And so when we entrust ourselves to Him and we entrust the situations that we're in to Him, and we trust that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, sin will be punished, wrongdoing will be addressed, and the innocent will be vindicated. When we entrust ourselves to Him, it frees us, friends, from needing to take revenge here on earth. It frees us, friends, because we then know we entrust ourselves to the God of justice. It frees us. It frees us to be able to endure suffering, not because we don't believe in justice, but because we know justice will be served. Because we know the innocent will be vindicated. Because we know that it's not up to us to vindicate ourselves, it's up to Him. And that frees us, friends, to love, to serve, to endure, to be a picture to the world of Jesus Christ and His goodness and His grace and his mercy. We give the world, friends, when we live in this way, a picture of the sinless, suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. I heard this illustration. Um, actually, it's not an illustration. It's a real story from a Tim Keller sermon. I heard it so long ago that I, I couldn't uh, really hunt down the, the source, but I remember it in this way. He tells the story of a young lady who was attending his church. And he asked the young lady, how, did, how in the world did you come to believe in Jesus Christ and how did you find yourself in this church? So she tells Tim Keller this story. She says, you know, I was a young executive working in a firm and I made a serious mistake that I should have been fired for. I made a serious mistake at work. My boss, instead of calling me out on that mistake, actually took full responsibility for that mistake before the senior management so his reputation took a hit, and I kept my job. Now, I was really, really, very surprised at why this guy would do this. So I went to his office, and I asked him, why did you do that for me? Why did you do that for me? And he tried to kind of 
sent me away. He said, you know, it's okay, it's fine. You know, I'm more senior. My reputation can take a hit, but I know you need this job. But I wasn't satisfied. I pressed deeper. Why did you do it for me? Again, he said something and I wasn't satisfied. So I asked him again, no, I really want to know. Why did you do this for me? And he said, well, if you really must know, I go to this church and I worship Jesus Christ. And this is a Jesus who laid down his life for the sake of others. This is the Jesus who died on the cross for my sins. I'm just trying to pay it forward in some small way. She said to him, I want to go to your church. I need to know more. So she came with him to the church and eventually became a follower of Jesus Christ. Friends, when we allow the gospel to shape the way we relate to people and the way we work, we have a role model to follow. But more than that, friends, we have the opportunity to show an unbelieving world what Jesus is like. The way we live is not preaching the gospel, but it certainly is commending the gospel to people. The way we live and the way we work is weighty, friends. And that's why it's so important for us to have a sound theology of work that is anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way we behave, the way we treat others, gives the world a glimpse of who Jesus is. And that's the purpose, friends, for enduring unjust suffering at work. But finally, friends, in order for us to do this, we need a power that's outside of ourselves because we can't do this alone. Come with me again, friends, to verses 19 and 20. For whatever reason, there is a phrase that is translated here that is not translated very well in any of our English Bibles. I've looked up different Bibles, and they just don't translate it well. And that's the phrase, a gracious thing. Look at verse 19. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow. It's used again in verse 20. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, in the original, that phrase that has been translated a gracious thing is simply the word grace, charis, from which we get the name charissa. Grace. This is grace. It's not this is a gracious thing. This is grace. And that preposition that's been translated in the sight of actually can also be translated simply from. So verse 20 should read, when you do good and suffer for it, this is grace from God. That's the literal translation. And verse 19, this is grace when mindful of God, one endures sorrow. What do we need, friends, in order to live the way Jesus has called us to live, to work the way Jesus has called us to work? We need grace. Now, how does that work out? You see, we tend to think of grace as something that's really passive. It's unmerited favor, we receive it, and that's it. But as one scholar puts it, grace is dynamic. It includes the idea of a divine power which equips you and me to live a moral life. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, With great power, 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great upon them all. It was grace that enabled them to testify with great power to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Friends, if you've truly grasped grace, it doesn't make you lazy. It gives you a zeal for God and for His purposes like no other. Yes, it is a concept we understand and we imbibe, but it is also a dynamic power that changes us and enables us to live supernaturally for God even in our workplace. It's a supernatural power that enables us to endure suffering and sorrow and to do it with joy. How do you get that grace? How do you get that grace? Look at verses 24 and 25. Do you notice the shift in Peter's argument? He moves from talking about Jesus as as our example to now focusing on Jesus as our Savior. Look at verse 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, at work, you look at your bosses, they mistreat you. What, is, what are you thinking of them? You're thinking that they're sinners. You're thinking that they're straight from God. You're thinking, although you may not be so impolite to say it, you think that they deserve the judgment of God, don't you? And perhaps they do. But this is telling you that if you're honest with your own self and you scrutinize your own life, you will see that you too are a sinner and you too have strayed. And you too deserve the just judgment of God. And yet Jesus, in his great love and undeserved mercy, in his grace, took your sins upon himself. He was wounded and died on the cross for people just like you. And not only that, while you were straying, He came after you. He came after you and he would not let you go. He brought you in and he says to you, I will be your shepherd. I will be your overseer. I will be your master. I will be your true boss. I will care for you and I will protect you. This is his grace. It's a grace that saves you. But it's also a grace that empowers you. Do you know why, friends? Because now that you've tasted grace, you can no longer look at yourself and your earthly bosses in the same way. It humanizes your earthly boss. You are more similar to him or her than you think. And what does that do, friends? It gives you the courage to stand up to them because they're mere mortals. They're not God. But it also gives you the humility. 
the gentle, sweet humility of Jesus to obey them and to do what you're called to do. And in so doing, friends, you and I display to a watching world the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, today we come before you and we pray, Lord, for our nation. We thank you for 56 years of independence. And we pray for your continued blessing to be upon our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those who serve us in different places, Father, that your blessing and grace would be upon them. We pray for us, Lord, that we would be a faithful and fruitful presence here in Singapore. Lord, we want to lift up to you our migrant workers. We pray for them. We know that they work in the various industries, uh, and there are also those who work as domestic helpers. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us if we have turned a blind eye to their plight. We know that it's been a very difficult time for them. Many are confined to their dorms. Many don't have a sense of job security, and they don't know when they can go home. Father, we pray that they would be treated fairly and equitably by their employers, that their rights would be preserved, and that their welfare will be taken care of. We pray that things will open up so they can have more manageable lives. We thank you that we could participate in some small way as a church through our work with the Alliance of Guest Worker Outreach. Lord, help us to serve them, even as you have served us in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for employers and employees in Singapore. Father, many of us struggle in the work that we do. We can't seem to find the right fit. We find the hours, the pay, and the bosses unreasonable. Some of us feel trapped. Some of us feel in despair. Father, we pray for eyes of faith to